Chapter Ten, Part Three of the Fifteen Decisive Battles of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fifteen Decisive Battles of the World by Sir Edward Shepherd Creasy. Chapter Ten, Part Three. Some of Elizabeth's advisers recommended that the whole care and resources of the government should be devoted to the equipment of the armies, and that the enemy, when he attempted to land, should be welcomed with a battle on the shore. But the wiser counsels of Raleigh and others prevailed, who urged the importance of fitting out a fleet that should encounter the Spaniards at sea, and, if possible, prevent them from approaching the land at all. In Raleigh's great work on the history of the world, he takes occasion when discussing some of the events of the first punic war to give his reasons on the proper policy of england when menaced with invasion without doubt we have there the substance of the advice which he gave to elizabeth's council and the remarks of such a man on such a subject have a general and enduring interest beyond the immediate peril which called them forth raleigh says surely i hold that the best way is to keep our enemies from treading upon our ground wherein if we fail then must we seek to make him wish that he had stayed at his own home in such a case if it should happen our judgments are to weigh many particular circumstances that belongs not unto this discourse but making the question general the positive whether england without the help of her fleet be able to debar an enemy from landing i hold that it is unable so to do and therefore i think it most dangerous to make the adventure for the encouragement of a first victory to an enemy and the discouragement of being beaten to the invaded may draw after it a most perilous consequence great difference i know there is and a diverse consideration to be had between such a country as france is strengthened with many fortified places and this of ours where our ramparts are but the bodies of men but i say that an army to be transported over sea and to be landed again in an enemy's country and the place left to the choice of the invader cannot be resisted on the coast of england without a fleet to impeach it no nor on the coast of france or any other country except every creek port or sandy bay had a powerful army in each of them to make opposition for let the supposition be granted that kent is able to furnish twelve thousand foot and that those twelve thousand be laid in the three best landing-places within that country to wit three thousand at margate three thousand at the ness and six thousand at folkestone that is somewhat equally distant from them both as also that two of these troops unless some other order be thought more fit be directed to strengthen the third when they shall see the enemy's fleet to head towards it i say that notwithstanding this provision if the enemy setting sail from the isle of wight in the first watch of the night and towing their long-boats at their sterns shall arrive by dawn of day at the ness and thrust their army on shore there it will be hard for those three thousand that are at margate twenty and four long miles from thence to come time enough to reinforce their fellows at the ness nay how shall they at folkestone be able to do it who are nearer by more than half the way seeing that the enemy 
at his first arrival, will either make his entrance by force, with three or four shot of great artillery, and quickly put the first three thousand that are entrenched at the nest to run, or else give them so much to do that they shall be glad to send for help to Folkestone, and perhaps to Margate, whereby those places will be left bare. Now let us suppose that all the twelve thousand Kentish soldiers arrive at the Ness, ere the enemy can be ready to disembark his army, so that he will find it unsafe to land in the face of so many prepared to withstand him. Yet must we believe that he will play the best of his own game, having liberty to go which way he list, and under covert of the night set sail towards the east, where what shall hinder him to take ground either at Margate, the Downs, or elsewhere, before they at the Ness can be well aware of his departure? Certainly there is nothing more easy than to do it. Yea, the like may be said of Weymouth, Purbeck, Poole, and of all landing-places on the south-west. For there is no man ignorant that ships without putting themselves out of breath will easily outrun the soldiers that coast them. Les armées ne volent point en poste. Armies neither fly nor run post, saith the marshal of France. And I know it to be true, that a fleet of ships may be seen at sunset, and after it at the Lizard, yet by the next morning they may recover Portland, whereas an army of foot shall not be able to march it in six days. Again, when those troops lodged on the seashores shall be forced to run from place to place in vain, after a fleet of ships, they will at length sit down in the midway, and leave all at adventure. But say it were otherwise, that the invading enemy will offer to land in some such place, where there shall be an army of ours ready to receive him. Yet it cannot be doubted, but that when the choice of all our trained bands, and the choice of our commanders and captains, shall be drawn together, as they were at Tilbury in the year 1588, to attend the person of the prince, and for the defence of the city of London, they that remain to guard the coast can be of no such force as to encounter an army like unto that wherewith it was intended that the Prince of Parma should have landed in England. For end of this digression I hope that this question shall never come to trial. His Majesty's many movable forts will forbid the experience. And although the English will no less disdain than any nation under heaven can do to be beaten upon their own ground, or elsewhere, by a foreign enemy, yet to entertain those that shall assail us with their own beef in their bellies, and before they eat of our Kentish capons, I take it to be the wisest way, to do which his majesty after God will employ his good ships on the sea, and not trust in any entrenchment upon the shore. The introduction of steam as a propelling power at sea has added tenfold weight to these arguments of Raleigh. On the other hand, a well-constructed system of railways, especially of coastlines, aided by the operation of the electric telegraph, would give facilities for concentrating a defensive army to oppose an enemy on landing, and for moving troops from place to place in observation of the movements of the hostile fleet, such as would have astonished Sir Walter even more than the sight of vessels passing rapidly to and fro without the aid of wind or tide. The observation of the French marshal, whom he quotes, is now no longer correct. Armies can be made to pass from place to place almost with the speed of wings, and far more rapidly than any post-travelling that was known in the Elizabethan or any other age. 
still the presence of a sufficient armed force at the right spot at the right time can never be made a matter of certainty and even after the changes that have taken place no one can doubt but that the policy of raleigh is that which england should ever seek to follow in defensive war at the time of the armada that policy certainly saved the country if not from conquest at least from deplorable calamities if indeed the enemy had landed we may be sure that he would have been heroically opposed but history shows us so many examples of the superiority of veteran troops over new levies however numerous and brave that without disparaging our countrymen's soldierly merits we may well be thankful that no trial of them was then made on english land especially must we feel this when we contrast the high military genius of the prince of parma who would have headed the spaniards with the imbecility of the earl of leicester to whom the deplorable spirit of favoritism which formed the greatest blemish in elizabeth's character had then committed the chief command of the english armies the ships of the royal navy at this time amounted to no more than thirty-six but the most serviceable merchant vessels were collected from all the ports of the country and the citizens of london bristol and the other great seats of commerce showed as liberal a zeal in equipping and manning vessels as the nobility and gentry displayed in mustering forces by land the seafaring population of the coast of every rank and station was animated by the same ready spirit and the whole number of seamen who came forward to man the english fleet was seventeen thousand four hundred and seventy two the number of the ships that were collected was one hundred ninety one and the total amount of their tonnage thirty one thousand nine hundred eighty five there was one ship in the fleet the triumph of eleven hundred tons one of a thousand one of nine hundred two of eight hundred each three of seven hundred five of six hundred five of four hundred six of three hundred six of two fifty twenty of two hundred and the residue of inferior burden application was made to the dutch for assistance and as stowes expresses it the hollanders came roundly in with threescore sail brave ships of war fierce and full of spleen not so much for england's aid as in just occasion for their own defence these men foreseeing the greatness of the danger that might ensue if the spaniard should chance to win the day and get the mastery over them in due regard whereof their manly courage was inferior to none we have more minute information of the numbers and equipment of the hostile forces than we have of our own in the first volume of hakluyt's voyages dedicated to lord effingham who commanded against the armada there is given from the contemporary foreign writer metteron a more complete and detailed catalogue than has perhaps ever appeared of a similar armament a very large and particular description of this navy was put in print and published by the spaniards wherein was set down the number names and burthens of the ships the number of mariners and soldiers throughout the whole fleet likewise the quantity of their ordnance of their armor of bullets of match of gunpowder of victuals, and of all their naval furniture was in the said description particularized unto all these were added the names of the governors captains noblemen and gentlemen voluntaries of whom there was so great a multitude 
that scarce was there any family of account or any one principal man throughout all spain that had not a brother son or kinsman in that fleet who all of them were in good hope to purchase unto themselves in that navy as they termed it invincible endless glory and renown and to possess themselves of great seigneuries and riches in england and in the low countries but because the said description was translated and published out of spanish into diverse other languages we will here only make an abridgment or brief rehearsal thereof portugal furnished and set forth under the conduct of the duke of medina sidonia general of the fleet ten galleons to zebres thirteen hundred mariners three thousand three hundred soldiers three hundred great pieces with all requisite furniture Vizcaya, under the conduct of Juan Martinez de Ricalde, admiral of the whole fleet, set forth ten galleons, four pataches, seven hundred mariners, two thousand soldiers, two hundred and sixty great pieces, etc. Guipusco, under the conduct of Miguel de Orquendo, ten galleons, four pataches, seven hundred mariners, two thousand soldiers, three hundred ten great pieces. Italy, with the Levant Islands, under Martin de Vertendona, ten galleons, eight hundred mariners, two thousand soldiers, three hundred ten great pieces, etc. Castile, under Diego Flores de Valdez, fourteen galleons, dupataches, seventeen hundred mariners, twenty-four hundred soldiers, and three hundred eighty-eight great pieces, etc. Andalusia, under the conduct of Pedro de Valdez, ten galleons, one patache, eight hundred mariners, twenty-four hundred soldiers, two hundred eighty great pieces, etc. Item, under the conduct of Juan López de Medina, twenty-three great Flemish hulks, with seven hundred mariners, three thousand two hundred soldiers, and four hundred great pieces. Item, under Hugo de Moncada, four galeasses, containing twelve hundred galley slaves, four hundred sixty mariners, eight hundred seventy soldiers, two hundred great pieces, etc. Item, under Diego de Mandrana, four galleys of Portugal, with eight hundred eighty-eight galley slaves, three hundred sixty mariners, twenty great pieces, and other requisite furniture. Item, under Antonio de Mendoza, twenty-two pataches and zebrais, with five hundred seventy-four mariners, four hundred eighty-eight soldiers, and one hundred ninety-three great pieces. Besides the ships aforementioned, there were twenty caravels rowed with oars, being appointed to perform necessary services under the greater ships, insomuch that all the ships appertaining to this navy amounted unto the sum of one hundred fifty, each one being sufficiently provided of furniture and victuals. The number of mariners in the said fleet were above eight thousand, of slaves two thousand eighty-eight, of soldiers twenty thousand, besides noblemen and gentlemen voluntaries, of great cast-pieces two thousand six hundred. The aforesaid ships were of an huge and incredible capacity and receipt, for the whole fleet was large enough to contain the burden of sixty thousand tons. The galleons were sixty-four in number, being of an huge bigness and very flatly built being of marvellous force also and so high that they resembled great castles 
most fit to defend themselves and to withstand any assault, but in giving any other ships the encounter, far inferior unto the English and Dutch ships, which can with great dexterity wield and turn themselves at all assays. The upper work of the said galleons was of thickness and strength sufficient to bear off musket-shot. The lower works and the timbers thereof were out of measure strong, being framed of planks and ribs four or five foot in thickness, insomuch that no bullets could pierce them but such as were discharged hard at hand, which afterward proved true, for a great number of bullets were found to stick fast within the massy substance of those thick planks. Great and well-pitched cables were twined about the masts of their ships to strengthen them against the battery of shot. The galeasses were of such bigness that they contained within them chambers, chapels, turrets, pulpits, and other commodities of great houses. The galeasses were rowed with great oars, there being in each one of them three hundred slaves for the same purpose, and were able to do great service with the force of their ordnance. All these, together with the residue aforementioned, were furnished and beautified with trumpets, streamers, banners, warlike ensigns, and other such-like ornaments. Their pieces of brazen ordnance were sixteen hundred, and of iron one thousand. The bullets thereto belonging were one hundred twenty thousand. Item of gunpowder, fifty-six hundred quintals. Of match, twelve hundred quintals. Of muskets and cleavers, seven thousand. Of halberts and partisans, ten thousand. Moreover, they had great store of cannons, double cannons, culverings, and field pieces for land services. Likewise, they were provided of all instruments necessary on land to convey and transport their furniture from place to place, as namely of carts, wheels, wagons, etc. Also they had spades, mattocks, and baskets to set pioneers to work. They had in like sort great store of mules and horses, and whatsoever else was requisite for a land army. They were so well stored of biscuit, that for the space of half a year they might allow each person in the whole fleet half a quintal every month whereof the whole sum amounteth unto an hundred thousand quintals. Likewise of wine they had one hundred forty-seven thousand pipes, sufficient also for half a year's expedition, of bacon six thousand five hundred quintals, of cheese three thousand quintals, besides fish, rice, beans, peas, oils, vinegar, etc., Moreover, they had twelve thousand pipes of fresh water, and all other necessary provision, as namely candles, lanterns, lamps, sails, hemp, oxides, and lead to stop holes that should be made with the battery of gunshot. To be short, they brought all things expedient, either for a fleet by sea, or for an army by land. This navy, as Diego Pimentelli afterward confessed, was esteemed by the king himself to contain thirty-two thousand persons, and to cost him every day thirty thousand ducats. There were in the said navy five terces of Spaniards, which terces the Frenchmen call regiments, under the command of five governors, termed by the Spaniards masters of the field, and amongst the rest there were many old and expert soldiers, chosen out of the garrisons of Sicily, Naples, and Tercera. 
Their captains or colonels were Diego Pimentelli, Don Francisco de Toledo, Don Alonso de Lucon, Don Nicolás de Isla, Don Agustín de Mejía, who had each of them thirty-two companies under their conduct. Besides the witch companies, there were many bands also of Castilians and Portugals, every one of which had their peculiar governors, captains, officers, colors, and weapons. While this huge armada was making ready in the southern ports of the Spanish dominions, the Prince of Parma, with almost incredible toil and skill, collected a squadron of warships at Dunkirk, and his flotilla of other ships, and of flat-bottomed boats, for the transport to England of the picked troops, which were designed to be the main instruments in subduing England. Thousands of workmen were employed, night and day, in the construction of these vessels, in the ports of Flanders and Brabant, one hundred of the kind called hens, built at Antwerp, Bruges, and Ghent, and laden with provision and ammunition, together with sixty flat-bottomed boats, each capable of carrying thirty horses, were brought, by means of canals and fosses, dug expressly for the purpose, to Newport and Dunkirk. One hundred smaller vessels were equipped at the former place, and thirty-two at Dunkirk, provided with twenty thousand empty barrels and with materials for making pontoons for stopping up the harbours and raising forts and entrenchments the army which these vessels were designed to convey to england amounted to thirty thousand strong besides a body of four thousand cavalry stationed at coutray composed chiefly of the ablest veterans of europe invigorated by rest the siege of Slu having been the only enterprise in which they were employed during the last campaign, and excited by the hopes of plunder and the expectation of certain conquest. And to this great enterprise and imaginary conquest, diverse princes and noblemen came from diverse countries. Out of Spain came the Duke of Pestrana, who was said to be the son of Rui Gomez de Silva, but was held to be the king's bastard. The Marquis of Bourgou, one of the Archduke Ferdinand's sons by Filipina Velzeline, Don Vespasian Gonzaga of the House of Mantua, a great soldier, who had been viceroy in Spain, Giovanni de' Medici, bastard of Florence, Amedo, bastard of Savoy, with many such like, besides others of meaner quality. Philip had been advised by the deserter, Sir William Stanley, not to attack England in the first instance, but first to effect a landing and secure a strong position in Ireland. His admiral, Santa Cruz, had recommended him to make sure in the first instance of some large harbour on the coast of Holland or Zeeland, where the Armada, having entered the channel, might find shelter in case of storm, and whence it could sail without difficulty for England. But Philip rejected both these counsels, and directed that England itself should be made the immediate object of attack and on the twentieth of may the armada left the tagus in the pomp and pride of supposed invincibility and amidst the shouts of thousands who believed that england was already conquered but steering to the northward and before it was clear of the coast of spain the armada was assailed by a violent storm and driven back with considerable damage to the ports of biscay and galicia it had however sustained its heaviest loss before it left the tagus in the death of the veteran admiral santa cruz who had been destined to guide it against england this experienced sailor notwithstanding his diligence and success had been unable to keep pace with the impatient ardour of his master philip the second had reproached him with his dilatoriness 
and had said with ungrateful harshness, You make an ill return for all my kindness to you. These words cut the veteran's heart, and proved fatal to Santa Cruz. Overwhelmed with fatigue and grief, he sickened and died. Philip II had replaced him by Alonso Pérez de Guzmán, Duke of Medina Sidonia, one of the most powerful of the Spanish grandees, but wholly unqualified to command such an expedition. He had, however, as his lieutenants, two seamen of proved skill and bravery, Juan de Martínez Recalde of Biscay and Miguel Oquendo of Guipúzcoa. End of chapter 10, part 3. Recording by Eva Easton, Slotsburg, New York, for Anna.